I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are back in the TARDIS. We are celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who, and we've reached the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, the longest-serving actor who to play the Doctor in on television, I have to stress this, in the franchise's history. Because if we're counting audio dramas, they're still playing the Doctor, not counting it for this particular case. Seven years as the Doctor, to which some people in retrospect, even Baker himself, has admitted that maybe he stayed on a little too long. Debatable, but he was the longest-serving Doctor, also the most popular Doctor of the classic era, probably because he stayed on for seven years. I mean, whenever someone did a parody of Doctor Who prior to 2005, it was always the Tom Baker Doctor. Like The Simpsons. When, uh, do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where they got the representatives of PBS in, and one of them was Doctor was the Doctor, and it's Tom Baker's Doctor? Well, I think that probably that's because to Americans, this was our first Doctor. The third because Doctor the- episodes did air, but they weren't as popular. It wasn't until the fourth Doctor era airing on PBS in the States where it really got popular in the States. Yeah, some PBS stations did pick up third Doctor episodes. But not a lot of them did, I don't think. Because, you know, PBS stations are very fragmented in the States. Um, It is public television in a similar fashion to BBC. It does receive some government funding in a similar fashion to BBC. Uh, but we it, don't have to pay it. We don't have to pay an annual fee like the Britons do, though. Yeah, it's it does. Yeah, it does receive tax funding, but we do not have to pay a TV license like. That's what I was getting at, yeah. Yeah, like in England. Um, so it, there is a congressional, you know part of the congressional budget that is decided on by by Congress that helps to fund PBS. But the, you know, individual Americans do not pay into that in a similar way. It's just out of the general tax fund. Um, the the thing is, though, is that local PBS affiliates have a bit more freedom on what they show. Mm. So while there is some standardization, especially now, there is a lot more standardization on what PBS shows. Earlier on, there was less so. 
So each individual PBS affiliate kind of had more leeway in what they would show. And I think it wasn't really until Tom Baker's era that they started, that more PBS stations started showing Doctor Who. Um, I know that my father told me that he didn't really see Doctor Who until Tom Baker. That was his first Doctor. Um, a lot of my friends who got into Doctor Who in the classic era told me that Tom Baker was their first Doctor. Um, I I got into it later on in um, kind of seeing footage at conventions and stuff. You know, there'd always be the video room at conventions and they would play things and um, a lot of local comic book stores in towns would have kind of their own video rental section. Uh, I don't know if the comic stores near you did that, but um, especially in small towns like I lived in, there the comic store would have a kind of geeky video rental section <laughs> where they would get <coughs> excuse me, where they would get um, anime or British sci-fi. So that's how we would get Red Dwarf or Doctor Who or Blake Seven, uh, things like that. And it's also how you would get in the old days like Ron Mahaff or um, when Dragon Ball Z started being a thing or um, even some of the the older anime and stuff. That's how you would see like Akira for the first time or Astro Boy, Gigantor. Uh, yeah, that that kind of that kind of stuff. So um, that's kind of how I started seeing Doctor Who, but I I only saw it in bits and pieces uh, through that kind of way, or if I was over at a friend's house and they had a, a VHS of it um, until the reboot series. But Tom Baker, I guess, kind of was also my first Doctor because he's the first one I recognized as Doctor Who as well. Like, if you asked me to describe Doctor Who for you, I would have also described Tom Baker. Uh, because if I saw a cosplayer at a convention with the long scarf and the fedora and the, you know... I would have been like, oh, you're you're doing Doctor Who. I recognize this thing even before I had ever seen an episode. To the point where um, prior to the uh, the Eighth Doctor TV movie, there was plans for a Doctor Who animated series in, this, in the United States. And the Doctor was heavily inspired. If, you can look this up if you haven't ever seen it, of what this Doctor Who animated series would have been like for um, Saturday mornings. The doctor was heavily inspired by Tom Baker. He had the 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 trench coat, the scarf, and the fedora. So like that look was very iconic in ter in terms of what Doctor Who was. Yeah, and, and it still is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, 
in the new series, in the 50th anniversary special, we had Osgood wearing the scarf. Yeah, and when David Tennant's doctor chooses his outfit at the end of his initial Christmas special where he, you know, finishes his regeneration, he puts on a scarf and then takes it off. And that scarf is actually the scarf that David Tennant's grandmother knitted for him during the Tom Baker era. You know, so that he could cosplay Doctor Who running around his house. <laughs> um, and, you know, there there are things like in the first Good Omens series when uh, Jack Whitehall's character shows up, he's wearing a tie patterned after the <laughs> the fourth Doctor's scarf. You know, it's it's still in there. Um, that is iconic. I mean, I have that scarf wrapped around the top of my uh, headboard for my bed. You know, <laughs> it's like um, it just—it's one of those things that is just like it's cool to have around, you know. Yeah. You know, of course, Tom Baker, legendary doctor, but he was not the first choice. We haven't really talked about other actors that could have been the doctor. And the fourth Doctor one is very interesting because the original plan was to have a much older actor playing the Doctor. Michael Bentine was considered for the role, but uh, he wanted too much influence on the scripts, so they didn't go with him. Uh, an actor, Richard Hearn, was also offered the, uh, the role, but he insisted on playing the character very similar to his comedic Mr. Patsy character, which, uh, yeah, the BBC wasn't going to go with that. Now, granted, I'm not familiar with that character, but I've seen very few, we're seeing some videos of him, very Charlie Chaplin-ish. And yeah, that's the best I can describe it, is Charlie Chaplin-ish. And I don't think that would have worked for the Doctor. Um, Plus, we already had a Doctor who kind of had that hobo Charlie Chaplin-ish kind of feel in the second Doctor we already talked about. Yeah, so, Troughton, you know. But Troughton did, but when it came time to be serious, Troughton was very serious. And yeah. it seemed like Hearn really just wanted to be comedy 24-7, which really wasn't the tone the show was going for. Another actor, Bernard Cribbins. Yeah, if you're a fan of the reboot series, uh, Wilford Mott, yeah, Donna's grandfather. Uh, also was in the 1960s Dalek Doctor Who movie, Dalek Invasion Earth. Was considered to play the Doctor. But uh, Cribbins eventually did turn it down because he didn't want to do television. He wanted to do films. He eventually did Doctor Who, though. And to this day, the late great Bernard Cribbins is considered by a much loved companion of the fandom. Yeah. Oh, he was he was so good. Can you imagine how a Bernard Cribbins doctor would have been? Uh, you know, I think things happen for a reason sometimes, and I think he ended up in exactly the point in the series that 
he should have. Mm-hmm. So, you know. But the role eventually went to this relative, unknown, unemployed actor named Tom Baker. And like I said, they had originally planned for a much older actor to play the Doctor. Much like we talked about before with um, with William Hartnell, they brought in the character of Ian Chesterton to kind of be the young man to do all the action stuff while, while the older Doctor was doing the science and techno-babbly stuff. That was the original plan. So we get Harry Sullivan, the the um, the unit agent, to kind of be the young man doing all of the action stuff, while the original plan was have this older doctor do the techno babble stuff. So now you have these two relatively young men kind of doing the same thing in in the doctor and Harry Sullivan. You know, the weird thing is is to realize how young. Tom Baker was playing the doctor because he comes across as so much older. And I think it's just his portrayal. He doesn't look particularly old. But his manner, his bearing. He comes across as an old soul. The old man in the young man's body. Yeah, and he has that, and I think part of it's just the voice, because Tom Baker does have that incredibly distinctive voice. Mm. Um, and there's something about the way that he he delivers some of the more, you know, serious lines that he does seem very commanding. And I think that that's where you get that feeling of age. Mm. He comes across as older than Harry, certainly. Mm. Even though they're, you know, roughly the The same. Yeah, the actors are close in age. Yeah, the actors are, are roughly the same age. But it's just that... Tom Baker as the doctor just seems so much older and wiser, I guess. Well, I'll, we'll get to Harry not maybe being the sharpest knife in the drawer, but the uh, but when when he delivers some of those lines and just the way that he says them, and of course he was, you know, nothing against Ian Martyr who played Harry but you know Tom Baker also has that kind of classical theatrical training which I don't think Ian Martyr had the the way he delivers those lines just makes you think that he has been there and done that a little bit more really it kind of reminds you know granted it's not the same, but it kind of reminds me of how Matt Smith did the doctor in a very similar old man in a young man's body type of, because when Matt Smith would really get serious, you can kind of see the old man come out of him. Yeah, it, it really was, was interesting. You know, when, when we get to Matt Smith, we'll talk about that more, but there were times in Matt Smith's performance that he really had that, 
kind of weary soldier who has maybe seen more than he should have at his age. And even though Tom Baker's doctor hasn't been through that yet, you do get the idea that this guy has seen more than what he looks like he has. Yeah. So even though it's Harry that's the that's the military man in the duo, um, yeah, Tom Baker comes across more as the I'm the older, wiser one, and you should listen to me. So, yeah, before we really get into the story here, let's pick up where we left off in our last Doctor Who episode. So when we last left off, we were with, with the third Doctor. And at the time was with Joe Grant. Eventually, Joe leaves and we get the reason we're going to be honest. The reason we're doing this episode is because we want to talk about Sarah Jane Smith. Yay. There is a lot of really good fourth doctor stories. And we talked for several hours of which ones we were going to do. We came to the decision that we cannot do the fourth doctor without doing a Sarah Jane episode. So that's why we're doing this. So Sarah Jane Smith, investigative reporter Sarah Jane Smith, joins up with the third Doctor. They go traveling again. Eventually, the Doctor ends up on the planet of the spiders, gets radiation poisoning, passes away, and we get Tom Baker's Doctor. And... Well, we have to back up just a little bit and talk about how Sarah Jane ended up in the TARDIS. Because... The Doctor did not want Sarah Jane as a companion. Sarah Jane decided she was going to be a companion. She snuck her adorable little self onto the TARDIS. She wasn't even supposed to be in that unit day. She got on there. Yeah. I mean, everybody was like, Sarah Jane, go home. And Sarah Jane was like, no, Sarah Jane, don't go home. Sarah Jane, go to the TARDIS. <laughs> and so Sarah Jane was going to stay. Sarah Jane was absolutely the most amazing thing on Doctor Who in that whole era. Thank you very much. Until probably we get to Ace. Because much love to Ace. We'll talk about her eventually. But, uh... I mean, yeah. we don't get the Joe Grant adventures. We don't get the Romana adventures. We don't get the Leela adventures. No, we got the Sarah Jane adventures. Sarah she Jane got two different series, thank you very much. One of them did not get picked up for a full series. We don't talk about Canaan and Company. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? Canine and Company, it 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 should have gotten better than it did, I think. Yeah, I'll die on that hill. <laughs> um but uh but yeah, no. There's there's a reason why Sarah Jane kept coming back. All right. Um and it's because as much as as much as Liz Sladen did eventually say that Sarah Jane became kind of a one-note character, she eventually described it as, yes, Doctor, no, Doctor, which a lot of the companions in this classic era did, especially the female companions. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about that before, that a lot of them, all the way back to dear old Susan, 
um, kept complaining that they were just written as one note, you know, screams or, you know, fetch the doctor coffee. That, and, and we um, talked about that last month with with Joe Grant. Like you don't want someone that's your intellectual equal. You want someone that'll bring you coffee and tell you how great you are. Yeah, um, I I don't think that Liz Sladen really understood until later in in her career just how much Sarah Jane meant to people, and I'm glad she finally understood how much Sarah Jane meant to people and how much impact she had on eventually generations of women specifically. And that, um, and that kind of continues now. Uh, Elizabeth Sladen's daughter, Sadie Miller is the voice of Sarah Jane for the audio adventures now. So it's keeping it in the family, which I think is yeah. really cool. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad we got the, the Sarah Jane Adventures eventually. Um, it was a pretty good show, and I liked it. Um, I'm glad that she eventually got a return to the main series in the reboot and finally got uh, to come back and have her reunion uh, with the Doctor again and a proper, you know... Uh, kind of farewell and wrap up of her storyline um but yeah i mean sarah jane's entry into the series really did revitalize it in a lot of ways i think for many many people who thought the show was getting slightly stale and when we got sarah jane smith and the fourth doctor Boy, did the ratings really pick up. The combination of Sarah Jane Smith and the Fourth Doctor made the show go back to the time of Dalek Mania, which we talked about previously. Yeah, the, the, it, the highest ratings of the show's history was during this era. So, in part, thanks to, you know, the amazingness of, of Elizabeth Sladen. And then later on with the amazingness of Lala Ward as, as Romana. But we're talking about this point now. Yeah, and, and nothing against Lala Ward, because we really did. I mean, the do we want to do the Romana episode or do we want to do the Sarah Jane episode was such a debate between us. Um, because we love them both so much. Yeah. Um, but eventually it was like, you can't do Fourth Doctor without talking about Sarah Jane. Uh, because this is the iconic, iconic duo. Uh, and in... and poor, poor Harry kind of feels like a third wheel. Which is why he only lasted the one season. Yeah. Um, eventually it, it, it just kind of becomes the Doctor and Sarah Jane show. Uh, for for a bit here, but um, this episode does have all three of them, uh, and we're we're really talking about it because this rewrites a bit the story of the creation of the Daleks, and, and it's being redone by Terry Nation. Yeah, the the creator of the Daleks. Yeah. Because if, 
Because if anyone is going to rewrite the history of the Daleks, it's going to be the creator of the Daleks. Yeah, I mean, he he has come back to to Doctor Who now. We we talked about when we talked about the Daleks originally that he left the show and took the Daleks for a while and, you know, went off to America to try to see if he could do other projects with the Daleks. And that didn't really work out. And eventually he licensed the Daleks back to Doctor Who and everything. But eventually he was like, no, 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 let's let's go back and let's write more Dalek adventures for Doctor Who. Um, and eventually they decided to slightly retcon the original war between what were originally called the Dolls and the Thals. And they were like, eh, we don't really like that name. So they've now retconned it to be the Khaleds and the Thals. And the thing about it is, Genesis of the Daleks is considered one of, if not the greatest story of the fourth Doctor era, and we're still in the first season. This is this is Tom Baker's first season, and that and that first season story is considered one of the greatest. And not only that, is that this is part of a longer narrative, a season-long storyline. Because it starts yeah. out in Robot, where they fight the robot, they get in the TARDIS, and they end up in the Ark in space. From the Ark in space, they beam down to Earth for the two-parter Santaran experiment. As they're beaming back up to the Ark to get to the TARDIS, they get intercepted by the Time Lords, and they end up on Skaro, which is where Genesis starts. Yeah. And as we discussed before... We're going to say hello again to an old friend because we've got Michael Wisher back. We, we talked um, about him last time. Yeah, we talked about him in our last Doctor Who episode because he was also in Terror of the Autons. Um, he is back this time to be the first actor to ever portray Davros. So yep, this is part. yeah, this is gonna be a, an interesting thing. We've been talking about introducing a lot of the Doctor's big antagonists and even though we we've already talked about the first time the Daleks showed up, this is the first time we actually get to see Davros who created the Daleks. Yep. The Daleks, even though it's called Genesis of the Daleks, the Daleks don't really only play a secondary role in the story. The real villain of this story is Davros. Yeah. Um, and, and we get to see why he created the Daleks. We, we hear why the Daleks were created in that initial story in the first Doctor you know, that we we talked about. But it's kind of just, well, we started to evolve and we needed these mechanical shells. And then that the Thals just kept evolving and eventually circular evolution brought them back to just their original form. Which is ridiculous. It's, it's Doctor Who. Yeah. But 
this actually shows that Davros planned the evolution of the Daleks into the form we see them for basically all of Doctor Who. That little mutant, that little one-eyed mutant that we see in the, in the, in the Dalek shells. Uh, yeah, they explain it in the story that the ongoing war between the Khaleds and the Thals was increasing the radiation on the planet and that eventually they would have to mutate to survive in the radiated world. They've accepted this. The, the Khaleds, that is. The Khaleds have accepted this fate. And that fate does, and that doesn't change throughout the course of the entire story. They've accepted that their ongoing war is going to change the ecosystem of their planet. They're okay with that, and they're okay with evolving into mutants. We have Davros, their chief scientist, the smartest man on on Scaro, is going to guide that evolution to make them the perfect beings to survive in this climate. That's why he creates the outer shell to give them mobility, and you know. A gun just for self-defense. Yeah, that's all it's for. That's all just it's for. self-defense. And a plunger for and some the, reason. Yeah, the plunger is uh, for taking care of the sewage system, I guess. Mm. Uh, he calls it uh, these these little pepper pot robots. Uh, he, he originally calls them the Mark III Travel Machine. And then he calls it the Daleks. <laughs> um, the big uh, elephant in the room is the Khaleds are Nazis. I, I mean, it, it's it's really obvious they're Nazis. They have the if the uniform doesn't give it away because they're still wearing that that they're wearing the same uniform, and they have the Iron Cross on their uniforms. They even do the salute. They click their heels and they hold their hands up. Yeah, and the the uh, symbol that they have on all of their uniforms is kind of a mix of the SS runes, but with an eyeball. I mean, it's it, it's very obviously Nazi fascist imagery. And very specifically so, because as we discussed in the original Dalek episode, Terry Nation was like, yeah, these are Nazis. They're space Nazis. I created space Nazis. This this is what I created. Duh. I mean, the whole purity thing, you know. Yeah. Um, the And, and, and that is even them as, as Khaled's. Like, they want to destroy the Thals because... They believe that the Khaled race was the perfect beings in the universe, and they must destroy anything that is not them, impure beings. And notice that there are, we see both sides of this war, and both sides of the war, and I, I hate to be this person because obviously the Khaleds are much, much worse, but... There, there are problems on both sides of this war. Um, you can chalk it the problems on the Thal side up to they just want the war to be over and they're not really thinking morally because wartime. The Thal side 
it's we see men and women on their side they don't treat the mutos which are the people that have already started to be mutated by the radiation and have been exiled from the society um and they've been exiled from both sides um they're not treating them very well and they're using them as forced labor slave labor um up until the point of death so i mean they've got their issues too but, there are no good um, guys in this war but it's also yeah, yeah, there's no Scar- good guys in this war. As they say in this story, it's it's a war that is that has been going on for a thousand years. So everyone that is currently alive in this story only knows a planet of war. Yeah. Um and and we do see that the the mutos have also been kind of uh ravaged by this because they find Sarah Jane at one point and they're like, oh, she's a norm. We should kill anything that doesn't look like us. And it's like, really? You're the, the the outcasts. Like, show a little compassion, you know? So we see that even the mutos have been kind of, you know, the the environment has warped their sense of ethics as well. So, but it's obvious that the the Khaleds are far and above the the worst of the three factions and the other two could probably come to some sort of sensible arrangement uh without this but the um the interesting thing is is that the colleagues who have the most strict fascist society all men we never see a female college and we only ever see uh, the military and the science division. We never hear talk of civilians. We never, the Thals, we mostly see their military, but at least we hear talk of civilians. We hear talk of other parts of society and we hear mutos talk about other parts of society within the thals but with the colleges we only hear about the military and the science division and we never once hear or see talk of a college woman which i found very fascinating so I, I I give credit to Terry Nation that this is a f- really well written and fascinating look at in stage fascism right before it self destructs. Yeah, but let's let's ask the other question: Why is the Doctor here? Why did the Time Lords take him out of that transport and put them here? Because the Time Lords believe that at some point in the future, the Daleks are going to become the dominant life form in the universe, and they want to stop that from happening. It's almost like the Daleks are going to start some kind of war. Like a war in time, maybe? A war, like a maybe? Time, uh, time uh, war? 
<laughs> Let's rip that one off because Russell T. Davis does credit this story in his universe as the first shot in the Time War. Retroactively, yes, but in Russell T. Davies' world, in his when he was putting his version of Doctor Who together, he credits Genesis of the Daleks to be the first shot in the war. And hard-pressed to disagree with him. Because the Time Lords are, you know, they're, they're being proactive. They're sending their guy, they're sending the Doctor to exterminate the Daleks before they become a threat. Yeah, and we we just talked about how the Doctor was stranded on Earth for meddling in the affairs of the time stream, and now here we are with the fourth Doctor where the Time Lords are like, yeah, um, why don't you go meddle in the affairs of the time stream? <laughs> in fact, we're going to trap you there until you've meddled to our specific content, and then uh, we'll let you go back to the TARDIS. Oh yeah, here's a time ring. Yeah, here's the time ring. Contact us when you're done, and we might let you leave the planet. Have fun! But that's kind of an extension of that last bit of the third Doctor, because, yes, after after being stranded on Earth for a while, the Time Lord said, hey, we can't directly interfere, but you've already interfered enough, so we're going to allow you to travel, but we get to decide where you go, and you can meddle over there, but if you get caught or died, we're gonna deny our, we're gonna deny we ever sent you there. Yeah, the Doctor does Mission Impossible, that's where we're at. Remember, kids, the Time Lords are hypocrites, and we're glad they're all dead. Like, like I said before, the Khaleds are okay with the purity of the Khaled race. They're okay with exterminating the 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 Thals. They're okay with mutating to this new form so they can be the perfect beings to live on this planet. They're okay with becoming the dominant life forms of the universe. The problem that they have is that da- that Davros, in his plan to create the Daleks is to remove them all emotion and make them senseless killers. And you kind of want to go, I mean, look in the mirror, guys. You're already in-stage fascists. Like, what do you think you've been doing? You've been exterminating another people for how many centuries now? You kind of are already there. And the fact that we hear them talk about this war, and it's just the Dalek rhetoric without the ring modulator. They're doing the yelling, they're saying, complete and utter extermination! Yeah, it's just hearing normal human voices, you know, saying those words. You're just not hearing them come out of a robot. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is another brilliant move by Terry Nation. It's, they're already Daleks. They just don't have, they're they're just not in the pepper pot. Yeah. The 
only difference between what they're doing now and what they're going to do as the robot form, the Dalek that we know, is like just a matter of physical form at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I love that uh, I love that. Terry Nation puts it in there, but he doesn't really hit you over the head with it. The the the, the splitting of the hair is like, yeah, we we don't mind doing becoming Daleks, we don't mind doing all this stuff, but uh, we want our our free will and not being programmed by a computer. We want our emotions. We want the good and the bad, not just the bad. And I'm and I'm like, what good? You're already you your life's mission is to destroy this other race of human beings on your planet. How is that good? Looking at the Daleks is essentially them looking at a mirror and they can't figure it out. That you know, we're gonna get the Dalek project shut down, we're gonna do all of this. To the point where 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 Davros himself is like, you know what? I know how to get them back on my side and be all in on this Dalek thing. I'm going to be a double agent. I'm going to go to the foul side. I'm going to give them the formula to get through our defenses. And then they'll have to be on my side because we need the Daleks to to destroy the Thals. Yeah, the I think the most interesting twist in this story is and just to say there is a lot of padding in this episode this is six episodes long yeah this this is if this were made today this would be like a really gripping two-parter maybe Mm. um and i think there would be a lot more action and stuff but it ends up being a little too padded out. But that is um, that is the nature of classic Doctor Who. Like we have this many weeks to fill up. We need to stress this story to fill this time. Padding, padding, padding. Yeah, but the the basic story is really tight you know when you some of the stuff with uh sarah jane and harry as much as i hate to say it is a little too stretched out you know Mm. but the the basic plot of it and also a, a little too much of the scientists going back and forth of like well, sh- should we go against Davros? But he's such a genius. Uh, but maybe this is the wrong plan for us. You know, there's a little too much of them going back and forth. You could just go like, we talked about it off screen and we've decided we don't agree with you. You know, it's like, I don't really think we need to have all the scenes of them plotting behind his back. I think it's really just there to fill out the the runtime. Uh, but the... The most interesting thing, I think, is the discovery that Davros was the one who ended up 
being the end of the Khaled race. For his own ego, though. Yep. Yeah, is that there are two cities by the end because you need the protective domed cities because the rest of the planet has been irradiated. And we do see that at least one has survived or been built when we first see it in um, the dead planet. One contains the Thuls and one contains the Khaleds and they've reinforced enough that it's kind of just a stalemate war at this point. Yeah, um, both, both sides are running out of ammunition. They have to conserve weaponry. Yeah. And they're slowly losing people to mutations because of the radiation on the planet. Uh, so eventually, both sides will be mutated. The Thals are gearing up for one final shot, sending a rocket over to try to penetrate uh, the dome and uh, blow up the Khaled city. But what they don't know is that Davros has reinforced the dome and will uh, it, it, the their rocket will not work. But Davros finds out that the scientists and a lot of the military disagree with his Dalek plan and they're going to try to stop him. So he goes like, well, you know, we've got to evolve out anyway and I've got a bunch of Daleks just already growing in a chamber somewhere. Why don't we just wipe out all of the Khaleds except for a few scientists that are on my side and will help me. And we can just go ahead and get this Dalek project started. I've got a bunker that'll, you know, it, it, it'll it uh, survive the blast. And I can go over to the stalls and be like, hey, I want peace. You want peace. Why don't I join your side? We'll wipe out the Khaleds together. And then, yay, you win. I'll join your side. It, it'll be cool. And they're too stupid to realize that you shouldn't trust anybody that would genocide their entire race. Like, maybe that's not a guy you should trust, even if you really want to win a war. And so they're like, yeah, sounds cool. You seem like a chill guy. Obviously evil dude who just wandered over here uh and so that's what they do and they wipe out like everybody except like eight collets those people are like oh you just blew up everybody we know and care about maybe we should vote you out of office which is i think the funniest scene the democratic the process <laughs> The democratic process being the most there's a there's a guy in there named Niter who is like the kind of like Himmler dude that's like next to Davros. And 
they're, the scientists come to him and they're like, no, Davros, we cannot take any war. We're going to hold a meeting and you're going to be removed from power. And we're going to put in somebody elected by the democratic process. And when they say the democratic process, Niter just has this look on his face like, no, not the democratic process. Niter, I mean, Niter himself is one of the big twists in this thing because you, there is a point in the story where you think Niter has had enough. He's going to turn against Davros, so he starts talking to the 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 anti-Davros people of the of the college. You know, people who are doubting Davros, and it looks like he's going to join their side. And it's like, you know, where are the others? Where are the other people who are against Davros? We can we got to we got to strike soon and. Well, it's about me and this guy and that guy and that guy. And then Nair goes, thank you. That's all I needed to know. Playing them the whole time, which is a great villain move. Because like he's just, demeanor just snaps back into that militaristic tone of voice going from. And then just Davros comes out and says, oh, so you are plotting against me. Yeah, Nair- it's like. Never reveal the names of your all your co-conspirators to the new guy who is obviously evil. Uh, Also, just never reveal the names of all your co-conspirators to the new guy, but also especially not if he's, like, super obviously evil. Can we talk about Davra for just a moment here? Of course. We'll we'll, we'll get, I mean, I want to talk more about Davra specifically, is that physically davros because we have the we have the the dav it's never really stated much here but it, in other media and other shows in other in later episodes and in expanded media we kind of go into more of how davros became who he is now get now we like we said this is a planet that has been in in a war for a thousand years we don't really see Davros pre, pre-injury until like the 12th Doctor era. And that's him as a kid. It's never outright stated, but there's some obvious injuries that has happened to Davros as a result of this war. His skin is burned. He, both eyes don't work. So he has a cybernetic eye in the middle of his forehead. His legs don't work, so that's why he's in his mobility chair. The mobility chair has a life support system that keeps him alive. He's got one functioning hand that barely moves, which really is why he has Nader there to begin with. Nader is literally his right hand and his left hand and his legs and every other body part. And I kind of wish that they had gone into a little bit more of that in the story. This particular story. I don't know if that would have made him more sympathetic or not, but, you know, it, it just, it's just interesting seeing seeing the way Davros looks in his, that has only fueled his obsession for perfection and the completion of his, of his Dalek project than anything else. The, but, the thing right. is, though, is that I'm, I kind of like the idea that Terry Nation had to not make him sympathetic is, you know, it is always 
an interesting thing to understand the motivation of a villain. But not all villains have an empathetic motivation. Not every villain needs a redemption story. And not every villain needs a redemption story. You know? It's the Thanos was right people. You know? It's like, no, Thanos wasn't right. Um, And even if he was, his methods were wrong. Mm. You know? At most, you can give Davros that he was right that his people were mutating because of this radiation and they might need help to survive that. Maybe that they they needed, you know, a life support chair like his. Or maybe they needed some genetic manipulation or research to help them survive that mutation because it does seem like the people who were going through the mutations naturally were not surviving the process for long. Okay, fine. Rational. I can understand that. However, then his idea was and we need to keep the purity of our race and become the dominant race in the universe. And that's where you stop empathizing, or you should. Mm. You know, if you're a decent person, that's where you, you stop relating to Davros. You know, if he just wanted to help his people survive this mutation process, Okay, I'm with him. But when you go like, and now we must be pure and supreme, no empathy for that. And, and, and I like when the doctor gives him that that choice. You know, what if you had the ability to destroy all of your enemies in one blow? Would you do it? You know, kind of the the the, the empathy test. If you could kill all of these people with one blow, with uh, he uses a virus. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he uses that example to say, you know, if you could do it, would you? And his shock, his his the 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 genuine fear in in, in the doctor when the, when Davros says, "Yes, I would," to have the ability to control life and death in my own hand. Yes, I would. It would make me stronger than the gods. It would make the Dalek the supreme force in the universe. Of course I would do it. Like, granted, Davros is holding nothing in his hand. He is holding nothing in his hand. And then the doctor just grabs his hand. Because he is such he has such fear in him over the potential that Davros could just flick the switch or press a button or crush a vial that would end an entire civilization in one blow. And Davros doesn't even think about it. Of course he would do it. Yeah, and the difference between Davros and the Doctor, of course, is that the Time Lords 
gave the doctor several options in his mission. You know, you can prevent Davros from ever creating the Daleks. You can convince Davros to go a different way with his creation, you know. But one of them was just outright genocide. Just completely wipe out the Daleks. While they are still few enough in number that that is possible. And we get the famous image of Tom Baker holding those two wires. Asking, do I have the right to do this? They haven't done anything yet. You know, it's it's it, it's the whole, you know, could you kill Hitler as a baby? He says that. He says that entire that entire speech without mentioning Hitler, obviously. But he says, you know, what if someone told you that there's a baby out there that's going to grow up to become a ruthless dictator? Would you have the would you have the fortitude to kill that baby before he becomes anything before he becomes a threat? It's the whole baby and Hitler thing. Yeah. It's interesting that Sarah Jane immediately goes, yes. <laughs> um, hello, Daleks. Um, the most evil creatures in the universe. Yes, of course I would. Liz Sladen later would say that Tom Baker really took that scene incredibly seriously. Because he understood the ethical dilemma he was relaying. Especially to a an audience of children. Yeah, we forget that Doctor Who was a show made for children. Yeah, and, and sometimes we, we still forget that that's kind of the, the primary target audience is families with children. Especially the recent announcement of that whole Doomsday event. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, in the in the 80s, they were still, you know, they, they understood that, yes, they had adult viewers, too. But it was still primarily a, a show for children. Um, I mean, this is season 12. So the ki people who were kids when season one came out were already adults by this point. Yeah, so, I mean, they understood that they had, they now had adults who had grown up with the show. Um, you know, it, it, it had been on for about 20 years at this point. But Tom Baker really does give an amazing portrayal in that scene. And I want to give him so much credit because it is a really great, scene and Terry Nation did a good job at the writing of it I think Tom Baker added some lines of his own as well from what I've read and that combination of we know because we've seen other Dalek stories and we know from stories that the Doctor tells even in this episode what the Daleks will become the destruction that they will bring throughout the universe, what they represent, and still the doctor knows that they're not that now. 
is there a way he can still change that fate? He even he, that? he even says that because of the destruction that the Daleks made, allies were formed, and those allies would never have formed if the Daleks didn't already attack their worlds. So some good did come out of the Daleks' existence. Yeah, and eventually he decides, like, no, I, I can't, I can't do it. He and literally rips the wires right out of that, right from the explosive. He can't do it. Yeah. It's a nice and blink and you'll miss it moment. Like, he, he changed his mind, they all run off, and you see Tom Baker just rip that cord right out of the, uh, the incubation room. Yeah, he doesn't want to risk somebody else accidentally setting it off. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stop him trying to change that fate anyway, because then we get him trying to talk sense into Davros, like, listen to the rest of your scientists, you know? It's... You don't have to go the path of you know, complete aggression and, you know. But he wants to. That's that's the thing about Davros. He wants to. I mean, he tortures Sarah and, and, and Harry just to get the strategic information of every loss that Daleks has ever had. And we get that we get the history lesson. For the longtime fans as 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 the doctor goes through every single appearance of the Daleks and the heavy time they lost, starting with the Dalek invasion of Earth. Yeah. The The interesting thing is, though, is that you can tell that Davros and the people who are already on his side are not... Uh, they're not horrified by any of this information. They are already without empathy and stuff. They don't need to have it genetically taken out of them. They're already there. They're already Daleks. Just missing the casing. Yeah. We we get a little side bit where there's some shenanigans and there's the Thals are planning to, you know blow up the door to the, the bunker and trap Davros and his Daleks inside and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we have the running around and the padding. Oh yeah. no, will everybody get out in time and free train, oh, no, roll credits till next the, week. Yeah, we've lost the time ring and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, you can so much of this episode's padding involves playing keep away with the time ring. Yeah, it really just is a MacGuffin to be like, well, why can't they leave yet? But there, there is a a good moment at the end where finally the Doctor realizes, like, I've lost. I can't do anything else I my only option is I have to 
take out the ability for them to make Daleks. They've already made a few, but the rest of the organic parts of the Daleks are in that incubation room and he's like, Nope, I've I've gotta blow that up. I, I gotta I gotta do that. Um there there is no other option here. And so Sarah and Harry run off to the thals and they're like, please don't blow up the door yet. The the doctor is coming and you know, we've gotta wait. But they watch in horror on the screen as uh, the doc, uh, the Daleks and Davros are in the room together and what happens always happens Davros loses control of the Daleks because he programmed the Daleks to think that they are better than everyone and Davros is not technically a Dalek by Dalek standards so why do they have to take orders from Davros? Yep, and he even tells him, don't kill them. They're scientists. They're not warriors. We can help you. We, our combined intelligence can give you great power. And the Dalek says, yeah, you're, but you're not Daleks. Exterminate. But of course, the thing is, is that we talk about it every time we talk about one of these kind of stories. The collaborators always think that there's going to be a place for them in the new regime, but of course there there won't be. Because you are not like us, you are the other, and it doesn't matter if you helped us or not, you're still the other, and uh, you must be destroyed. I mean, fascism is a death cult, and eventually, you know... And it, it the, the good thing is is that they still do this with Dalek stories. Even among the Daleks, the Daleks aren't pure. We've seen uh, Daleks made from humans, Daleks made from other life forms just to survive. Because as we see in this in this story, they were programmed to survive by any means necessary. But also retain the purity of the Khaled race. So if they're surviving by mutating humans or other life forms into Dalek mutants, but they're also not pure Khaleds, well, there's going to be a fight between the pure Khaleds and the and the not Khaleds. Dalek infighting has been the main storyline of how many Doctor Who stories over the years. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that the main problem at the root of fascist ideology is that things in nature and society do not survive without evolution and progression. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Nothing in nature survives without that. Um, and nothing in society survives without that either. Uh, things change, and if you don't change with it, you die. Uh, but fascism is always trying to get to a 
perfect state and then maintain a stasis. And that's just not how nature works. Or go back to a perfect state at some mythical time in the past that never existed. Yes, maybe you can say like, oh, we've achieved the perfect state now. But tomorrow something's going to happen where you need to adapt. And then you're not the exact same by whatever the standard was yesterday. So does that mean you're no longer ideologically pure or physically pure or whatever? And that's what all these Dalek stories continue to show. You know, Davros had an idea of purity, but of course Davros wasn't pure. And of course, it's based off of Hitler. Hitler had the idea of the perfect Aryan who was six foot tall and blonde and blue eyed. Have you ever seen a picture of Hitler? Nope, he was not blonde hair, he, he blue was, eyed. He was not six foot tall. He was not blonde hair. He was not blue eyed. He was he was not the ideal, you know, that he set forth. So what happens if you want an entire society that is only made up of that? Hitler doesn't meet that standard either, you know. Um, and of course, it's it's just ridiculous. And that's what Terry Nation is is trying to put forward. And he does it beautifully here. Yeah, um, so at the end, the Daleks turn on Davros, exterminate him. Don't worry, he got better. Yeah, I mean, in in a in the very next story we see him in, it turns out that they didn't kill him, they just put, put him, him in stasis. stasis to save him in case they needed him, which they end up doing. But in the video screen the doctor's watching it looks like they killed him so the doctor's like oh well he's dead never mind but they end with a dramatic speech of like we will be back you know uh it may take us a thousand years but you know and the doctor yeah. says that they've just delayed the evolution, evolution of the 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 daleks for like a thousand years so mission sort of accomplished yeah that was one of the conditions that the Time Lords put into the Doctor. You can destroy the Daleks, prevent their creation, change their to a force of good, or delay their evolution. And he was able to delay their evolution by a thousand years. Yeah. But he's also introduced this a lot. Granted, the evidence, or at least the only evidence that they know of, of the Doctor's existence, as well as him being a time traveler was destroyed and about a thousand years from that point his younger self is going to get involved and we already talked about that yeah it does end on kind of an interesting note which is the doctor saying that yeah they're still out there and they're going to rise up and be well one day but it's all right because good will rise up to fight it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are allies, unions, entire uh, organizations that exist because 
organizations for good that exist just because the Daleks kept attacking people. So the doctor, at least the way the story ends, is the doctor was kind of proven right that there was some good that came out that came out of the Daleks' existence. And yeah, yeah, the the old standby of good conquers evil. I mean, it is kind of the theodicy of Doctor Who, where it's like, well, you have to kind of keep explaining why why the bad guys keep winning and coming back. You know, they've done this recently in some of the stories where they've dealt with more dicey periods in human history. Mm where the doctor has given these sort of inspirational speeches of like, I know it looks dark now, but you have to understand that eventually they, they will lose. You know, it's, it's really difficult when you're kind of going through it. (laughs) Yeah. To hold on to those moments. And hoping that is true they would eventually call these moments at least in the in the doctor who universe call these moments fixed points in time moments in history that have to happen in order for the positive future to exist so maybe the dalek's existence their creation their their urge to become the dominant force in the universe is always meant to happen, always will happen. But it would, you know, they have to exist for other things to happen. At least that's how, again, if we're talking about the modern series, at least that's where they go with it. Yeah. And maybe, you know, but in a way, it is kind of the same way in real life, too. You have to go through some hardships in real life to get to the good times. It sucks going through the hardships. It really sucks to go through the hardships. But eventually you'll get to the other side and you'll get to what is supposed to be the good times. Hopefully we'll get to the good times sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean... Here's here's hoping uh, that the uh, the doctor's words prove true, and that there are, are forces of good that uh, rise up. Hopefully, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about the. Uh, we have to talk a little bit about Harry here because we kind of glossed him over, but uh, we've got an amazing. There's a joke in the fandom about Harry not being the, the brightest bulb. Five words. Five words that every Doctor Who fans will say. If you're listening, say it with me. Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. Yeah. And we've got a doozy of a Harry Sullivan is an imbecile moment in, in this one. Where there the Doctor and Harry have to go through an underground cave system to get from the College City to the Thal City to try to find Sarah Jane. And 
there is, for no reason at all, a giant paper mache clam oyster, some sort of mollusk, just hanging out in the cave. I mean, it was mentioned that before working on the the college that Davros experimented his mutations on the animals of Scaro. So it's possible that this is one of the results of those experiments. Yeah, whatever. But it's a cave mollusk and it's just hanging out there and it's really giant and really obvious and right in their way where there is light. And Harry just stomps on in, wanders off the path and shoves his leg right into it and then screams, ah, help me, help me, doctor, my leg is trapped. Ah, help, 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 doctor, help. Like, why did you specifically wander that direction? It wasn't even in the path you were walking, Harry, and just stomp your big old boot right in it. Like, why was that a thing you felt you needed to do? Were you looking for pearls? Like, wh- what was that? I don't know. It's... We needed a cliffhanger for this episode. It was, was possibly the dumbest thing in the entire serial. Like, what What are you doing, Harry? It just... I just saw a giant clam. Thought I'd shove my foot in it. Thought it'd be fun. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know that 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 seriously takes that 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 takes the medal for dumbest moment in this entire serial, and I had to mention it because, oh Harry, Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. Yep. So yeah, let's let's kind of say what happened after this. All right. So after taking care of the Dalek situation, taking the time ring. They end up back on the Ark in space where they end up taking, uh, where they end up uh, facing off with the Cybermen again. Uh, yeah, well, that's another story for another day. Eventually, they return back to Earth. Harry leaves the crew. After several more adventures, Sarah, we say goodbye to Sarah. And we get a in, new. Comp- in Croydon, not Aberdeen. <laughs> huh? I said in Aberdeen, not Croydon. Yeah. (laughs) The doctor then gets a new companion in Warrior Woman, Leela. Eventually, Leela leaves and we get a new companion in Young Time Lord Romana, who sticks around and regenerates before leaving the doctor in the alternate universe known as E-Space. But he gets a new new companion while in E-Space, young boy named Adric. After after Adric joins, they end up on track and where we get Nyssa joining the team and finally back on Earth for the final companion of the fourth Doctor, a flight attendant named Tegan. They all end up in a place called Legopolis. Yes, Legopolis, where the Doctor takes a fall and regenerates into our next Doctor, the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. So the next time we talk Doctor Who, we will be talking about the fifth Doctor and the youngest actor to play the Doctor in the classic series, Peter Davidson. So yeah. uh, get your get your cricket outfit ready and get your decorative vegetable. We're going to get to that. I just wanted to say a couple of things about our uh, actors here. Um, 
as of time of recording, uh, Tom Baker still with us at yep. 89. Still uh, playing the doctor, too, in the audio adventures. So he's still yeah, around. And, and occasionally still showing up on the uh, television series as well. The curator, the great cura- the great curator. Yeah. Um, but uh, has has gone on to do uh, quite a few other things. Uh, most notably did a series called Monarch of the Glen for uh, quite a few years and uh, did uh, the narration for the series Little Britain. Um, as well, and and then appears here and there in movies and other things. Lots of narration with that uh, great voice. Um, was uh, was in that uh, 2000 uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie <laughs> that will now be known as the Bad Dungeons and Dragons movie. I have a feeling, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Um, Ian Martyr, uh, who uh, unfortunately uh, passed away in the 80s uh, at the age of 42, far far too young, um, went on to write several of the Doctor Who tie-in novels. And uh, interestingly, did a lot of work for the Disney Corporation as a tie-in novel author as well. Wrote the uh, tie-in novels for both the movies Splash and Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which were both under um, Disney or, you know, Touchstone uh, imprints, and uh, also wrote four different Gummy Bears picture books. For the Gummy Bears cartoon. Liz Sladen, who played Sarah Jane, of course, kept coming back to the series, got the spin-off Sarah Jane Adventures uh, in the early 2000s, and all but uh, unfortunately she passed at age 65 uh, back in 2011 uh, from cancer, I believe. Uh, but like you said, her daughter has has taken over the role in the the audiobooks and um, Sarah Jane her herself, um, I believe, is still technically alive in the the context of the series. They did do a sort of a funeral goodbye show at Sarah Jane during COVID. And uh, as I mentioned in, 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 in our last Doctor Who episode, uh, Joe Grant currently has the sonic lipstick and says, thank you, Sarah Jane, when she used it. So within the universe, it is assumed that Sarah Jane is no longer with us, mm. but uh, her memory still goes on. You know, not everybody follows the webcast. I don't particularly always do, so I, I would like for them to... <sighs> It's not I would like mean, for them to, to kind of have somebody say something, you know? Kind of like what they did with the Brigadier? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Brigadier, you know, they've they've kind of acknowledged that he passed and that, you know, his his daughter is kind of 
continuing on. And we've already set up the the character of Luke and, you know, so it would be nice, you know, maybe Luke and, and Joe and one of her many children or grandchildren shows up and they just kind of were like, oh, you know, before, you know, last time we saw Sarah Jane, you know, she did this or whatever, and then they can kind of just go on whatever, maybe in whatever David Tennant's going to do or when Judy comes in. Ooh, you've mentioned David Tennant again. I have to talk about one thing before we wrap this this thing up, because so when Tom Baker left the show, he left the show. Like, he did not want to come back. He didn't even come back for the 20th anniversary special, the, the Five Doctors. They ended up using reused footage, and they used a freaking wax statue of him for photo shoots. But he did intend to come back for the 30th anniversary. Uh, when the 30th anniversary was coming up, he had contacted the BBC saying that he wanted to come back and uh, be the Doctor again. But he wanted to be the central focus character. Even getting Douglas Adams to write a script for him. He, this was his specific request. that He wanted to come back. He wanted to be the Doctor. And he wanted Douglas Adams to write the script. It was going to be called Doctor Who in the Dark Dimension. And the story was going to be that what if the Fourth Doctor didn't die in Legopolis? And kept on going. I mean, can you imagine... An anniversary special of Doctor Who featuring the most popular actor who's ever played the Doctor. And we're just supposed to forget that he had ever been gone from the show? I mean, that's crazy. That'll never happen. No. No, never. No. Not, a, <laughs> yeah. not at all. I mean, so how are you feeling about the 60th anniversary special? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it never happened, mostly because... uh the budget wasn't there. The people working on the show grossly underestimated how much this was going to cost. And uh, the other actors, they were going to get um, Pertwee and Davidson and Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy to do it. But their roles would have been so short in the in the special, it they might have not have been there at all. The only saving grace is that uh, we would have gotten Ace as the companion so that we would have had a... Uh, a 30th anniversary special with Tom Baker as the Doctor and Sophie Aldred as Ace going around having adventures. Which I kind of wish we could have seen that, but I, I don't want to, you know, let's celebrate. I want, <laughs> I want a Doctor Who special to celebrate all of Doctor Who, not just one specific Doctor. But yeah. if, you want, if you want more details on it, it's online. The script, the script is online. You can read the script for Dark Dimension and judge for yourself whether it should have been made or not. But my point still stands. I can but see he that. did, you know, he did eventually come back. Like I said, uh, the first time he had come back in an official capacity since he left was ten years ago in the power of the doctor playing the playing the curator. And I was in the theater. I saw that in the theater. And when Tom Baker showed his face, the entire crowd erupts because no one was expecting that. Yeah, they kept that a really good secret. Yeah. 
But uh, I'm glad that he's back. I'm glad that he's still doing the audio books again for as long as possible. And like you said, he's in his 80s now. So let's enjoy Tom. It always makes me nervous when I see Tom Baker trending on social media. Yeah. Because I always think, wait, 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 wait. Please don't tell me. Today can't be the day. Don't let today be the day. Yeah, when we when we get people to trend on social media, can we please start having hashtags like, you know, Tom Baker is doing okay, you know, or, or something. Like, I just need people to be like, you know, it, it needs to be like a, a really positive hashtag. Like, you know, Tom Baker is trending today. Don't worry, he's still alive. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's my thing. Uh, I love Tom Baker's doctor, but yeah. So the next time we talk, oh, Doctor, Who, I, go ahead. I, I said I was going to say something about Jelly Babies real quick. Uh, I was very happy the first time I got my hands on some Jelly Babies because that's his thing. You know, would you mm. like a Jelly Baby? And I was so happy because it's so hard to find British candies over here. Jelly Babies are not a thing over here, and really hard to find where I live. And I finally got some one day and I was like these are going to be the greatest thing ever and I tried them because I love gummy candy and gummy bears and some, somebody in England told me like oh yeah they're they're like gummy bears but you know British so I was like this is going to be awesome and I tried one and they are awful they're just horrible I'm sorry I don't know what that is but no no, they are bad. They are not good at all. And I was very disappointed. And I sat down and cried because I had built them up for like decades in my mind. I'm like, this is the doctor's candy and it's going to be great. And it was not. I was very sad. Not a fan I'm of sorry, the England, baby. but gummy bears are better. <laughs> that That's my jelly baby story. All right. So we finally got the jelly babies out of the way. <laughs> Um, anyway, anyway so, next week we'll talk about how stupid celery is as a fashion accessory. Not many people can uh, can uh, pull a decorative vegetable, but Peter Davidson did pull that off. Yeah, I mean, more or less. Anyway, so that will be next month's Doctor Who episode to come back as we talk Peter Davidson and his decorative vegetable. Next week... Uh, as for more directly, next week we are going to be talking about The Incredibles. We are going back to Pixar, going back to animation, going back to superheroes. And it's going to be fun to go back to this movie. Uh, especially, I haven't seen this movie since the sequel came out. And it's, so it's going to be fun to go back to this and, and, and rewatch it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So... So come back next week for The Incredibles. Come back next month as we talk to Fifth Doctor. And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. 
Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.